And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. In 1989, Ann Applebaum, then a young reporter for The Economist, sat atop the Berlin Wall and watched history unfold as a boisterous crowd chipped away at the iconic barrier that separated East from West. But if it seemed on that heady day that democracy was on an inexorable rise, it feels much different today. Now a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and staff writer for The Atlantic, Applebaum has written an incisive book based on her decades of reporting from Europe and the U.S. called Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. As Americans confront new challenges to a democracy we once took for granted, I sat down with her this week to talk about the book and the personal journey that helped inform it. Here's that conversation. Ann Applebaum, welcome. Good to see you. As I told you before we started rolling, um, I approached this conversation with some trepidation because six years ago I wrote a book called Believer, and it was really about my faith in democracy. And you just wrote a book last year called Twilight of Democracy. <laughs> so we'll try and reconcile those things down the line here. But I, I, your, your own journey in some ways informs your perspective on these issues. And there are some things about it that interested me. One is the Applebaums themselves, uh, a Jewish family in Alabama. And I'm wondering how the Applebaums got to Alabama and where they, they must have come from somewhere in Europe at some point. Yes. So yes, thank you for starting with the the, the blank spot in my family's history, which is how the Applebaums got to Alabama. <laughs> Funny enough, nobody in my family, particularly on my father's side, was particularly interested in where they came from. These were Jews who got to the United States and assimilated as fast as possible and didn't talk about where they came from and weren't interested. And the person who later got interested in wh- who, where they came from was me. Yeah. And I tracked the family down, or that part of my family down, because the rest, the other part is quite different. But I tracked that part of my family down to a town called Kabrin in Belarus. And we reckon they left Kabrin, well, my great-great-grandfather left Kabrin sometime in the 1890s, 1880s, 1890s, legendarily because he was trying to escape the czar's army. He was trying to mm-hmm. escape uh, being conscripted. And then he went to New York. And then there used to be these Jewish organizations that would send people out of New York other places because there were, you know, there was too many poor Jews arriving in New York. And so there were these charities that would do that. And we assume that that was how they got to Alabama. And then later it's emerged that there are a bunch of people in Alabama from Cabrera. Yeah, yeah. I mean, specifically in Birmingham, Bessemer, and a few other towns. There was actually an American congressman, Ben Erdrich, for a while. He was a congressman from Birmingham, whose family is also from Cabrin. So it's probably the case that a bunch of them, one of them went there and then the others followed, which is often how immigration works. And how were they received, do you think, do you know, in uh, in Alabama? So I imagine with some hostility, I, I actually have an uncle, or he's not really an uncle, he's a cousin. He's married to a cousin of mine, in, again, in my father's generation, who was one of the victims or was one of the people who was assaulted in before the Pittsburgh synagogue attack in the last couple of years ago, there was one previous attack on a synagogue 
And it was in Alabama in the 60s. And it was a Ku Klux Klan assault. And one of the people who was mm. shot was a cousin of mine. Mm. A story that I was not told until the Pittsburgh shooting happened many decades later. Yeah. And my cousin was interviewed on a television program. And uh, and no huh. one had talked about it. So I assume that, although on the other hand, I also think there were so few of them. You know, they were more a subject of curiosity rather than than uh -huh. hatred. I mean, the racial divide was obviously so much more important. I've met people from my father's childhood who are not Jewish, who remember him very fondly, and he seems to have been very popular in high school. So, you know. He had like a shoe, uh, your, your grandfather had like a shoe company there or something? <laughs> yes. My grandfather had a shoe store. I think at his height of his business career, he had three shoe stores, um, yeah. one in Bessemer, one in Gadsden, and one somewhere else. But I remember very vaguely, I remember the shoe store. So there was a shoe store in Bessemer. My dad came from Ukraine, and uh, his father had a shoe store in Brooklyn. So it seems to be the thing thing to <laughs> thing to do. But you know, one one thing about the timing seems to be they were there during this uh, period of real turmoil in the South, the beginnings of the civil rights movement. Were they involved at all? Birmingham obviously was um, in some ways ground zero. So my father is not, was not quite the right age. He was a little bit young, and I don't think he was especially involved. I mean, I, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I mean, I think one of the reasons he left the South was to get away from the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And he moved away where to somewhere where the issues were different. But I don't think they were... I don't think he was politically involved when he was younger, no. So, and his was sort of a classic story, went off to Yale. He was he was the first and last person from his high school to go to Yale. The <laughs> high school doesn't exist anymore, so. And uh, and became a, a prominent lawyer in Washington, Covington and Burling, a very prominent firm. Your mom uh, was a program coordinator at the Corcoran Gallery of Arts. And you went to Sidwell Friends, which is kind of the gathering place for Washington elite kids. Yes, it was somewhat less so then. Mm -hmm. It was more of a hippie Quaker school than, uh -huh. than what it <laughs> later became. This is before lots of president's children went there. But, uh -huh. but yes, it was a private school. And then you went off to Yale. I did. And so, you, you know, you became later, and we'll get to why, a prominent uh, conservative writer. You obviously didn't grow up in that kind of Quaker uh, hippie high school is not the birthplace of prominent conservative thinkers and, and, and writers. So that wasn't your orientation to begin with. No, although, I mean, I suppose in the general background was democratic liberal if, in, that I grew up in, although my, my, my parents were not political partisans. They weren't involved in Washington politics in the way some, you know, some people's parents were. So at, at Yale, uh, you studied uh, literature and history, but I was interested, you were the managing editor of the New Journal, which had a, a pretty uh, interesting history, uh, you know, in, inspired by, uh, you know, some of the new journalism writers, uh, Tom, the Tom Wolfs and the Gay Talises, I think founded by uh, Daniel Jurgen, who became well known in the, in, for his writings on energy. Tell me about that. Tell me what drew you to that sort of journalism. 
I've not thought about the new journal in a long time, um, but I suppose it was because it was magazine writing. It was, I mean, we're talking about university journalism, so I don't think we're talking about anything of super high quality, but you were allowed to be somewhat more literary. It wasn't, you know, just producing copy like the Yale Daily News. It was somewhat, it was somewhat more collegial. It wasn't especially competitive. It was more writing, the writing for fun aspect mm -hmm. that I liked. Mm -hmm. You could write in a slightly different way. It was it was a little bit more creative than writing straight news journalism. As I recall, I did a big interview with Bart Giamatti, who was then the president of Yale. Ah, yes. Which won some kind of prize um, about his life and background, somewhat like the interview you're doing of me now. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, mostly that. Mostly we wrote about New Haven. We wrote about local mm -hmm. things. No, it wasn't. I think I wrote a piece. I, I went to Russia in my in the summer between my junior and senior years. And I think I wrote about that, mm -hmm. but I, so it was a little bit, little bit of that, but no, I mean, it wasn't foreign correspondence and it wasn't terribly sophisticated. Maybe that uh, piece became source material for people when Bart Giamatti became the commissioner of baseball. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. So um, I read somewhere that you blew your interview for a Rhodes scholarship and I'm wondering what that meant. I just could I I honestly now you're now we're we're digging into areas that I don't remember that well but I remember they asked me something about why I'd taken a course on Pushkin because I did Russian literature and I didn't have a good answer to that that was that's the one question I remember <laughs> I was I don't know he's you know he's one of the great writers in the world and somebody said well why is Pushkin relevant and I I, I don't know I mean he's not you know um, <laughs> I, I did win a Marshall scholarship so I wasn't that terrible at, you know interviews but but I, I remember that Rhodes one going particularly badly <laughs> you went up you wound up at Oxford anyway and um, among the uh, folks you knew back then was Boris Johnson so I didn't know Boris Johnson at Oxford but my husband did I see my husband was at Oxford a little bit before me. A couple, a year or two before me. In fact, we think we once went to the same party there, but we, but we didn't really, we didn't really know each other there. But, but I knew Boris a little bit later when I was a journalist, London-based journalist. We were in the same general circles, and he was a journalist. He, he was a journalist. I, I at that time worked for the Spectator magazine, yes. and he was a columnist for yeah. the Spectator. And yeah. I, I, he was, he was just around. But, yeah. but Rod, Roddick, my husband knew him at Oxford. You write in your book about his evolution. Talk a little bit about that. Talk about him and the, the guy you know. I'm not sure how much he's actually evolved. <laughs> I'm not sure his views have changed tremendously or his personality is all that different. Um, you know, he was somebody, one of those people who likes to be the life of the party. And, you know, whether he was joking or not joking, it was always hard to say. I mean, it was, you know, the life was conducted at a very high level of irony um, at The Spectator and in the world that I knew in London in the 1990s. And so almost everything was kind of in inverted commas and people <laughs> joked and made fun of stuff all the time. And it was very amusing to be inside that. Um, and Boris is very much a creature of that, a product of that. And so whether he was writing semi-true articles about the European Union and supposedly outrageous things they were doing, they're, they're banning bendy buses in Britain or they're banning the red buses, which wasn't true, or they're, you know, they're they're banning prawn crisps, you know, these kind of prawn flavored, shrimp flavored potato chips that the British love to eat in pubs and which also wasn't true. You know, he would sort of make up a new crazy thing that they were banning and write an article about that. And it was always very funny. 
Um, and so that was how he did journalism. I mean, it was it was mocking things and making fun of things. Well, making up stuff. It, there usually was a grain of truth, but yeah, he did make stuff up. Mm-hmm. Um, and famously got fired a couple of times from different jobs for making things up. Uh-huh. But but it was most of his public persona, as I said, was conducted at this level of very high dry humor, you know, mm-hmm. and is what I'm saying true or is it not true? It's not really clear. And is it, you know, and mostly it's meant to be funny. Mm-hmm. And he's still to some extent doing that. And <laughs> that's one of the problems he has as prime minister is people aren't really ever sure whether he's telling the truth or not. Yeah. We'll get back to him. You started freelancing for The Economist and they uh, sent you, I guess, as a stringer, but as a correspondent of sorts to Poland. Tell me about that, uh, because you arrived there at a very consequential time in 1988. It was consequential. That was not entirely luck. And then I, I made a trip there. I went to Poland and Hungary and a couple of other places from Oxford in, it must have been 1987, 87, 88. And I went partly sponsored by and working together with a group that was then based in Oxford that was bringing money to dissidents. So the first time I went there, I met lots of interesting people. So I knew there were lots of interesting people there and things were happening. Um, And this was at a moment when changes were happening very rapidly in Russia. This is when Perestroika had begun and Gorbachev was was, um, secretary general. And it, it, it felt like a moment of change. And yet, and yet what was going on in Poland and what was going on in Eastern Europe was a kind of secondary story. And so The Economist was uh, a prominent magazine, but it didn't have a full-time bureau there or a person there. And so I went to see the then Europe editor, who's still a friend of mine many years later. And I said, what if I went there as a stringer? Would you support that? And he said, sure. And if if memory serves, what they paid me was something like $100 a month plus whatever money I could earn, you know, what, however many articles I produced and plus a few expenses. And then I wrote for lots of other people too. So I really was a stringer. Yeah. And the, the job did eventually evolve, you know, because it did become a big story. And you met your husband during that period of time there? Yes, I met him in the summer of 1989. I know he's been a journalist. He's been in government. He, at that time, was a journalist. He had spent the previous several years in Afghanistan, um, mm-hmm. where he had covered the Afghan-Soviet war, and then later, eventually, the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan. But he came, and he he was born in Poland and had left in 1980 uh, and then stayed out of the country after martial law was declared in 1981 because all of his friends were arrested. So he had effectively immigrated to the UK. And then he, he got into Oxford as a refugee, basically. And he then stayed there. He became a journalist. And then he came back to Poland for the first time in 1989. He'd been out of the country for eight years. And he was there. I forget. I think it was the Sunday Telegraph. It was one of the British papers had sent him back. And I met him that summer. And then he left for a bit. And then he came back in November, right before the Berlin Wall fell. And then he and I drove to Berlin, you know, at that moment. And we were there on the day when the you know, people were standing on top of the wall and, you know, chipping away at it and drinking. So uh, that, was, yeah. that was really how I met him. Yeah. I want to talk about that day in a second. Tell me about how the experience in Poland and your exposure to Eastern Europe helped shape your thinking about issues of democracy and 
autocracy and so on. How formative were, was that experience? So they, it was very formative. I mean, the first really formative experience was the summer I spent in what was then Leningrad, which was just before Perestroika, um, and which I've subsequently realized was really almost the last, I'm almost the last student of my age who could have gone there um, just before it began to change and seen, you know, the kind of Brezhnev era Soviet Union as it still then was. And exposure to that and to the lots of people I met in Moscow and then later to Warsaw and the people who were trying to change things in Warsaw were very formative, both in my understanding of what is communism, although I went on trying to understand it further by writing books about it, yeah. and what was the ideology that shaped it and how, what it did to people and what the lack of political agency did to people. Mm-hmm. And yes, it was both in making me wary of the state and decisions taken by the state. I mean, I was much more passionate about that a few years ago than I am now, I, but also in making me wary of authoritarian and totalitarian ideologies more generally, mm-hmm. uh, whether they're of the right or of the left. So I've, you know, having seen what life looks like in both Soviet Leningrad and then in um, communist Poland, Jaroszelski's Poland, um, I was pretty convinced that those were bad systems. Mm-hmm. So talk about that day when the wall fell. Talk about that scene and talk about what your expectation was and what the general expectation was, there was obviously exaltation as people chipped away at that wall. It was more complicated than that. So we actually drove there. It was not the, the, the wall was breached as nobody really now remembers on the day that Helmut Kohl was in Warsaw. This was the German chancellor and he was making his historic first trip to Poland had already changed governments. We'd had these historic elections in June and we had a non-communist government for the first time. And Cole was in Warsaw and, of course, flew back in the middle of the night. And we were all there. Roddick was there and I was there and a lot of other journalists were there to cover this visit that was now not happening. And so we suddenly realized we woke up in the morning with the wall having been breached. And that was the only news story. We suddenly realized that we were unnecessary. Who cares what's happening in Warsaw? Nobody. So we got <laughs> in our car and it was then it was then quite a project to get from Warsaw to Berlin. It's now a kind of four hour drive on a on a very modern highway. Um, but then there was a two lane road and you had to get special documents. And it took us all day. And we finally arrived in Berlin in the middle of the night. We drove. And then, of course, there's also pre GPS. We drove right up to, you know, we literally drove straight all the way and we got to Checkpoint Charlie, which was the crossing point over the wall. Mm-hmm. And we got there. And the guard said to us, you can't cross here because it's not a it's not a civilian crossing. There were special places where you were allowed to cross the one. So we started screaming at him, you know, the wall is open. It doesn't matter anymore. You know, and he thought, oh, OK, all right. And, you know, he led us through. So we actually drove right up to the Brandenburg Gate and parked our car next to it. It's about two o'clock in the morning. And there were lots and lots of people. We were on the western side. Lots and lots of people sitting on the wall and teasing the guards. So this was a little bit past the moment that you saw on TV when people were opening champagne bottles. So where people were sitting on the wall and teasing the East German guards who were still standing there in this kind of no man's land. There were actually two walls and the guards were saying that and people would tease them and shout things at them. And then sometimes they would jump off the wall, you know, and then the guards would rush over and sort of throw them back over the wall. And it wasn't an entirely happy scene. I mean, it wasn't comfortable scene. And years later, a German historian told me that while we were sitting there on the wall, 
shouting things and people were singing things and and so on and lots of people were drunk that the Politburo, the East German Politburo, was meeting somewhere not that far away, trying to decide what to do about all these people sitting on top of the of the wall around the Brandenburg Gate and maybe and should they start shooting at them? And so there was a that was discussed. And of course it didn't happen. The fact that it didn't happen was partly for that partly helps explain what came later. In other words, that was a regime that had already given up. They already had decided that they understood their ideology didn't work and they were already mentally out of power. They were, they, they resigned. But, but the fact that the East Germans and then later some of the other East European regimes gave up peacefully is really a remarkable story. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course there are some exceptions. Uh, Romania is an exception and there are a few other exceptions. But they gave up power and, and the story ended happily and there was no mass shooting. And instead, East Germans who came to the Western side were given some money. And, you know, and eventually we had the path to reunification that was also remarkably fast and peaceful. You were, what, 25, something like that? Something like that. Yeah. What were your feelings being there? I mean, part of the, you know, I start off in journalism. Part of the, the thrill of it is to be on site when history unfolds. Did the magnitude of that moment, did it strike you at that moment? It did. I understood that it was it was a great moment. I think what I what I didn't understand was that it was in some ways, you know, I you know, I thought everything would just go on being like that forever. I mean, I had front page stories at the on the Independent, the British newspaper, and I was on the cover of The Economist, my stories, and somehow I thought you know, the news would just go on being good now forever. And of course, that didn't happen. And the next big story that followed was the Yugoslav War, which was a horrible story. So I, I maybe had a, um, a kind of overly happy introduction to journalism. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things about the 1989 story, as someone pointed out to me years later, it was a huge news story. Everyone wanted to read it. It was on the front page and it was a good news story. And mostly what's on the front pages of newspapers is bad news, you know, whether it's the Yugoslav war or it's mm-hmm. 9-11 or uh, something else that happened afterwards. And to and to be a kind of participant in this incredibly uplifting historical moment, I didn't realize how lucky that was until later on. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. So, you know, in your book, uh, The Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, you in some ways talk about that moment as a rather than the the springboard to a new world in which uh, liberal democracy was dominant and freedom uh, reigned, it became a disorganizing event in that the reason for being for many that held coalitions together was anti-communism. And uh, now with the fall of communism, that went away. You know, uh, I had uh, recently on the podcast, my old colleague, Ben Rhodes, who wrote a book called After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made, there are probably things about that book you would disagree with, but his fundamental premise was communism gave us a kind of organizing principle that went away in some ways, and it kind of went sideways in ways that we didn't anticipate. Yes. I mean, I don't think that happened immediately. I mean, it took some time for that to happen. And my book focuses quite a lot on how that affected 
conservatives mm-hmm. in the in in the US and the UK and also the sort of anti-communist coalition such as it was it was always very ropey and included a lot of diff- very distinct different kinds of people and but how it was in Poland that group held together more or less through the 90s and actually the push to expand the European Union and NATO was a was a side effect of this feeling of success and you know that we need to reinforce the west and and spread the message further was that a mistake was 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 the pace at which that was done a mistake? You know that you can get a pretty good debate on that. You can. That I don't think was a mistake. We have had thirty years and running of peace in a part of Europe that was the source of two world wars and a lot of violence in the previous centuries. I mean, up right up until the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and with again the exception of Yugoslavia, which is a kind of special case, we had mostly peace and an astounding amount of prosperity in Central Europe, you know, not just Poland, but, you know, the whole region all the way up to the Baltic states, um, and to some extent, even even including the former Western Soviet republics. And so, no, I don't think that was a mistake. The expansion of the institutions is part of what gave the region the stability that it's had up until now. You know, that the argument was that it gave, it was menacing to Russia and gave an organizing principle to Putin, it would be, I guess, the, the counter argument. Well, that that assumes that our foreign policy is determined by what Putin wants, which is a little bit strange. <laughs> and, you know, Russia was given a number of opportunities to join the West and be part of the West. And in fact, was welcomed into the West by several presidents over in different ways over time. And was asked to join the G7, which became for a while the G8 and was given a partnership with NATO and so on. And there were a number of joint projects. And actually, even at the beginning of, in the sort of just post 9-11 period, there was lots of joint US-Russian projects in Central Asia to do with Afghanistan and so on. So there were lots of moments when it seemed like, you know, Russia was going to be led in, but it was really Putin's decision to turn against the West, which he did for his own personal reasons, uh, you know, he finds he finds the West and he finds democracy to be a, a useful enemy and he needs an enemy to stay in power. And so it was his decision to make us into the enemy to an extent that I think we haven't even really realized, you know, anti-American and anti-Russian, uh, sorry, anti-American and anti-NATO, excuse me, programming is constantly on Russian television. It runs nonstop. And he finds that, you know, that's that's how he's securing his power now at a moment of kind of economic fragility in Russia. So I think that was really his a decision that he made later. I don't think it was inevitable. Just one last thing on this, because I want to get onto the larger issue of, of democracy and, and itself. But one of the critiques and one of the people who makes it is uh, Alexei Navalny was that, you know, the West came in and Americans came in and we were going to transform Uh, Russia into a market economy. And what resulted was a kind of crony capitalism or a phony and crony capitalism in which oligarchs Putin designated in many cases ended up becoming tremendously wealthy at the expense of the country. Yes, but that had very little to do with us. I mean, we tell the story of post-Soviet Russia as if we were an important player in it. When you look at it now, you know, the really important story was the decision made by Putin and other ex-members of the KGB to retake the country in the 1990s. And they started a project to do exactly that. And what you can fault us for is not 
our influence on Russia, which I think was probably minimal in terms of influencing policy and so on, you can fault us for creating the systems of money laundering and corrupt banking that enhanced Russian kleptocracy and Ukrainian and Kazakh and other forms of kleptocracy and gave them so much wealth and power. In other words, they used our financial systems to to steal and then and then launder back stolen money into the country. And that you can criticize us for. I mean, actually, Russian, what became Russian crony capitalism was already beginning in the 80s. I mean, it began before the end of the Soviet Union. Not and not just in Russia, also in in Poland and some parts of Eastern Europe, it was already starting, and then you know it accelerated in in the nineties. And I would also say that you know the model of Poland. I mean, although Poland is going a different direction now, I mean Poland has had thirty years of really extraordinary prosperity and wealth as a part of you know Western economic systems and as a part of um, mostly as a part of the European Union. So. You know, so it was possible to take a take a different path. But I think cronyism of Russia, in other words, the conversion of Communist Party and KGB influence into economic influence was something that happened without really very much Western help. What what we did help them with was our banking system helped them mm-hmm. steal a lot of money and still does, I should say. You know, when you hear the discussion about American politics, oftentimes you hear people speak about Trump and Trumpism as a kind of one-off, as a unicorn. I think the thing that's striking about your book is the lessons that you've drawn from authoritarian movements throughout Europe and some of the really striking similarities between how these movements grow and the tools that are used. Talk about that. What do you see? Because I know you're spending a lot of your time now on trying to uh, strengthen democracies against this assault and deconstructing some of the tools that are being used. Talk about sort of the common elements that you see that concern you. That's a big subject. I mean, it's funny you asked me that right after I was talking about kleptocracy. I mean, I, I think Trump is very much a product of the same forms of kleptocratic capitalism that produced some of the Russian oligarchs. Mm-hmm. He's somebody whose wealth comes from these luxury buildings, most of whose apartments are bought by anonymous, you know, people buying them through anonymous shell companies. We don't even while he was president, we didn't know who was buying buildings, buying apartments in his buildings. Yeah. Um, and that's again because of these systems that we've created. So a lot of you know, and his one of his sons famously said, "Well, we do so much business with Russia." I mean, I think a lot of a lot of their money comes from that world, um, and so in some ways, he's part of that. But he's also, in a different sense, I mean, the language that he uses, his the institutions that he pushes back against, is very similar. You can hear echoes of what he says in Russia. You can hear it, but also in the far right and nationalist parties in Europe. You know, I mean, why does someone like Trump talk about fake news and seek to undermine the impact of the media and push back against inspectors generals and denigrate the civil service? And, you know, why does he do all that? It's because he himself is doing things that are illegal and corrupt and he wants them to be hidden. And also because he knows that if he can do that, he has a, you know, it's a, it's a way of, of gaining and keeping power undemocratically. And that idea has been discovered by other people. So in that sense, he's very much part of a, 
a wave or a movement of people who have understood that particularly, and this is a separate subject, but it's related, and particularly in the era of social media with the weakening of so-called traditional media, that you can begin to create alternate realities in which you aren't a crook, you know, and in which your, you know, the, the, the things that you've done to, to cheat and steal can be hidden. Yeah. And lots of autocrats have understood that. Well, and also where you cast yourself as the point of the spear against, uh, yes. against uh, you know, all Foreigners, these- Foreigners, gays, yes. immigrants, uh, you know, in, or if you're in Russia, Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, it's, I mean, this is a, this is a much older, you know, this is, this is Carl Schmitt, the sort of the, the famous, the, the Nazi philosopher, you know, that politics is, a, is, a, is about dividing people and finding enemies and creating enemies. Um, and if you can create the right enemies, if you can organize people around fighting particular enemies, then you can win. Yeah. Um, and that's what Trump has tried to do. That's what Putin does. But that's also what Kaczynski does in Poland. That's what Orban does in Hungary. It's the same. It's very much the same. First of all, on your on your point about impeaching the media, I mean, he was very blunt about it. One thing about Trump is that he, you know, he often says things that other people would keep in the bubble box. Mm. And he told Leslie Stahl right before he took office that he wanted, she asked him why he was always attacking the media. He said, because I don't want people to believe you. Because if you write bad things about me, I don't want them to believe it. I yes, mean, he, it was I, I quoted very that in an article I wrote. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I quoted her saying that somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I think that that's... That that was it was very intentional. It was not an accident. It wasn't just emotion. It was a strategy. And the strategy was push back against any institutions that can hold me accountable. Yes. And, and, it's, and incidentally, it's something he'd been doing his whole life. I mean, he'd been. Well, that I wanted to raise that because um, he, uh, you know, I always go back to the this sort of foundational discussion between Trump and his father when his father said, look, the, the world is uh, there are killers and there are losers. Mm hmm. That's the world. I mean, it's basically a Hunger Games view of the world. It's profoundly cynical. No, these are profoundly cynical, nihilistic people who have no sense of the common good and no sense of there being any other point to politics except winning or losing. Yeah, I mean, I think Trump honestly believes that people who play by the rules are suckers. Yes. Uh, I, I think he believes that. And, and for democracy, that is a really profoundly dangerous philosophy because no, we d- democracy is all about rules yeah yes. no, no. i mean d- d- you know the, the the rule of law is utterly fundamental to democracy and this idea that you preserve the rules so that elections can stay more or less fair i mean elections are never perfect but you know you get elected you get to rule for four years and then you have then there's another contest four years later and but in the meantime you don't destroy the system that elected you you don't just undermine the electoral system. You don't under, destroy the media. You don't politicize the courts. You know, you don't do those things because the idea is that you preserve the system so that it remains somewhat fair. If you think about it, that, you know, that's always, it's a pretty fragile thing. Um, you know, you're saying to people in power, you have to preserve the institutions that will then oust you from power in four years. Yeah, And it's it's really remarkable that the U.S. went on for so long without anybody pushing back against that. But Trump finally did it. Yeah, I think that's one of the great lessons we've learned is how much a democracy relies on the goodwill of people who hold these offices. Yeah. And I often talk about the transition from uh, Bush to Obama. And you'll remember, we weren't terribly kind to Bush in our campaign. And 
Bush was very, very kind to us in the transition, not because he loved what we said, but because he felt he was a trustee of the democracy and he mm-hmm. had an obligation to hand it off to us in good condition. And uh, I've always appreciated and admired that uh, Trump believes every single thing should be subjugated to his interests. Yes. And that and that is the road to autocracy. I mean, that is how you do it. That's how Orban did it. That's how Putin did it years ago. Not that there was that much, you know, so many institutions that were functioning in Russia, but there were a few. But, you know, that's how Hugo Chavez did it in Venezuela. It's not a left-right issue. It's a question of whether you whether you make all the institutions of the state part of your political party and subjugated to your will or whether they have some independence and whether they can preserve that through the time that you're in charge so that they will still function for the next person. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Uh, you're in Poland, but I'm sure you've been uh, following the uh, the journeys of Tucker Carlson uh, over to Hungary. Yes, I wrote uh, where something he broadcasted about it. last yes. week. What did you make of that? So it's very interesting. I mean, Tucker Carlson is really following the path of the people who I, you know, had so much disdain for. You know, the left wing intellectuals who once went over to whether it was to the Soviet Union or whether it was to East Germany. You know, they disliked their own countries. They disliked capitalism. They disliked democracy. And so they sought some alternate imaginary utopian alternative in repressive, ugly, authoritarian societies. You know, there was a litany of those famous, famous book called Political Pilgrims that describes that process. And there have been more recent ones in Venezuela and so on. And Tucker Carlson is really a new version of the same thing. I mean, he's somebody who has come to hate and despise American democracy. Um, he doesn't like modern America. He doesn't like the, the, its demographics. He doesn't like its culture. He doesn't like the fact that people like him are becoming a, a minority in it. And so he's looking for a political alternative. And the, and the utopia he has found is this kind of third-rate satrapy. I mean, this kind of, you know, mini authoritarian leader in Hungary who is a thuggish and who's, most of whose political capital now comes from his friendship with Russia and China. And it's really rather sad, you know, that 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 that's what the conservative intellectuals now aspire to is this kind of mini dictatorships in Central Europe. I mean, it's 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 pathetic. But I, as I said, I think it comes out of this self-loathing. You know, you hate your own country. You look for a utopia somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, my question is whether you're giving him too much credit. It's also, you it's know, also trolling. Yeah. It's it's marketable. It he you know mm-hmm. he he basically is uh, drafting off of Trump. He's made himself a uh, you know a very successful infotainment uh, personality yeah. and gets paid a lot of money to do it. And he probably got I don't I I don't know this, but the the Hungarian government does pay people a lot of money to go there and speak at their think tank events. So yeah. that's not not an, also an impossible. It's a it's a very possible rather. Motive. You call it sad, but it's also dangerous because he does yes. have an audience. Uh, I mean, we see it on in this uh, disinformation about the virus and discouraging people from getting vaccinations, discouraging people from wearing masks. We now have a surge here that is a result of 
in in no small measure those kinds of tropes yes i mean that i that i suspect comes from something even darker which is that the republicans did not want biden to have a victory in other words they didn't want him to beat the virus and so i think the the original discouragement of of the vaccine was because they wanted the virus to spread because if it spread then biden would have a problem i, I genuinely believe that and of course the cynicism of that and the number of people who've died because of that is profoundly shocking. A few of them, you know, as you've seen in recent last couple of weeks, have started to say, well, actually, maybe some of you should get vaccines. But I think the original reason to push back against vaccines was that they didn't want Biden to have a victory. Isn't it also to tap into this fundamental idea that we're not going to allow the experts, the government, the state to tell us what to do, that we are this whole notion of yeah. freedom as being anti-establishment, anti-experts, anti-elites. You write about this in your book. This is a common element among these growing authoritarian regime. Yes, it's it's partly to create doubt and suspicion of the state. They, I mean, they both play off that. So it already exists in our country. They play off it and then they seek to multiply it further. Because again, if you can, if you, if people don't believe in experts and they don't believe in the government and they don't believe in public health officials and they don't believe in what, you know, newspapers that have fact checkers uh, write, then what do they believe in? Well, then they believe in whatever garbage they read on Facebook, which, is, you know, which is supplied to them by the infotainment centers of Fox or Newsmax or, or, or somewhere else. Um, so, yes, I think it is a it's part of a deliberate attempt to create this alternate reality. And by the way, that is another trait of authoritarianism. So Putin also spends a lot of time in the Chinese as well, spend a lot of time thinking about how to create alternative realities for their people to live and how to prevent them from finding out what's true and what's not true. That's very useful to dictatorships. Not just uh, to create alternative realities for their people, but also increasingly to create alternative realities for ours. They've leaped into the American political scene. You know, we, we, we spent years worrying about a nuclear attack and Putin's found a cheaper way to undermine this country. And, and that is through disinformation and, and just amplifying some of these divisive themes that Trump and others are promoting. Yes, um, this is something I started writing about in 2013, 2014, um, and it was it was became very clear to me that this is what was happening at the time of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is that Putin was very actively through social media seeking to change public opinion in Western countries. And to be clear about it, I mean it's a very clear, not very secret strategy, and the strategy is not necessarily to create things that don't exist already, just to exacerbate existing divisions. So they didn't invent Marine Le Pen's far-right party in France. They simply give it money. You know, they don't, they didn't invent the, you know, post-Francoists in Spain. They simply give them social media amplification. You know, wherever there's a division, wherever there's a extremism, usually it's right-wing extremism, but they will also support far-left extremists as well. They seek to amplify that, whether it's through money, whether it's through political contacts, whether it's through through social media. Um, and I don't want to overdo how effective it is, but, you know, in some places and at certain moments, it has been quite effective. And it's accompanied by this also, this is less of an issue in the U.S., but it's very important in Europe, by this, you know, attempt to buy elites, so buy 
whether it's in the financial world or whether it's business people or whether it's former politicians to sort of buy their way into influence um, in other ways too. And this was, and this is, by the way, was a, was a, was a strategy that was conceived precisely because they were aware that they can't win a kinetic war with us. You know, we are, we are militarily stronger. They don't want to go to war with us. They would like to win the war without firing a shot. And they so they would like to dismantle, the EU, they would like to dismantle NATO. They would like to get the U.S. out of Europe um, so that they become the most influential player on the continent once again. And they would like to do it without having any military engagement at all. And that has been the project for the last decade that didn't start in 2016. You know, you write about the fact that there have been other epics in our history in which, you know, we've been deeply divided as we are and in which people have been manipulated and so on. But does this sort of inexorable and exponential changes in in information technology, social media. Does this make this a unique period? I mean, the the tools seem a lot more insidious to me because, yes, we had yellow journalism, but it was on paper and you could see it. Yep. Here, all of these sort of, I mean, interactions being amplified, as you point out, by algorithms of social media companies who profit from them. Spreading uh, hatred, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how QAnon, for example, grew Mm -hmm. from this crazy, wacky, right, to having members of Congress and millions of adherents and 20% of the Republican Party saying, yeah, we we believe in this. How do we, you're you're involved in this. How do we combat this? How How do we push back on it? So first, it's important to understand that this really is a huge revolution in the way in which we perceive the world. And it's, you know, you have to look at other momentous moments in history. I mean, you have to look at the invention of the printing press. Maybe the invention of radio is a similar, another moment. The first people who really understood how to use radio were both Hitler and Stalin um, and later FDR. Okay, but later there was a democratic way to do it, too. But but you know, each one of these moments has created this destabilization and this is happening again. And, you know, I, I believe that sooner or later we will have to get to some kind of regulation of that space. And I don't think it can be the same. It can't be censorship. You know, nobody's going to, you know, we're not going to create a ministry of truth that picks things off Facebook, but looking and understanding the way the algorithms work, monitoring how they work. You know, there are already some scientists who are doing this, you know, having having access to the companies and understanding what that what how that what that process is and making sure that it's socially useful and not destructive. That's I mean, there you know, there are a number of different ways this can go. I mean, uh, there's a, there are a lot of people who are advocates of breaking up the companies. I mean, I worry that breaking them up would just create I mean, why is 12 Facebooks better than one Facebook? You know, except that, of course, you don't get these you know, mass movements quite so much. So, you know, a third thing to, to look at would be the creation of alternative forms of social media that are constructive. Yeah, and these also exist experimentally. Yeah. There's a there's an experimental one in Taiwan, for example. The Taiwanese government sometimes ha- seeks to use, there's a, there's a program they use to conduct public debate online, which is sort of like Twitter in that people post things. But instead of having everybody like and dislike things and it turning into a huge argument, they, the the program creates a kind of consensus. And so you can see where your view fits into other people's views and so on. Um, and so it may be that we need some forms of, uh, you know, some, you know, in, in the way that public television was one of the solutions to the problem of broadcasting, 
we may need this at least as an alternative to Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, Wikipedia is an interesting example. Wikipedia is very interesting. I mean, I disliked Wikipedia so much for so long because if you're, I mean, you must know this problem, you know, if you're kind of, you know, just about famous enough to have a Wikipedia page, but not really famous enough to have a team of people who are constantly checking (laughs) it and making sure it's true, then you have to deal with the fact that your Wikipedia page is full of crazy stuff all the time. um, but But however, it's true that it has created this community of trust around itself. It's, and essentially, you know, what's important about Wikipedia is both that it has rules and also that the rules are transparent and the rulemaking system is transparent. So people know how the, Wiki, you know, once you're, if you're somebody who posts a lot of stuff on Wikipedia, you know that it has to be done according to certain rules and the rules are published in public. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you think about Facebook, we have no idea why if you write something and it gets 8,000 likes or eight spreads to 8,000 people, you don't really know why. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't know what is the algorithm or what is the, what is the rule set that determines yeah. that. And Wikipedia creates trust because it has these legible, transparent rules. And its economic model is different. So Facebook, you know, they profit handsomely from... Well, Facebook is an advertising company. Yeah, right. I mean, actually... Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas Wikipedia is a nonprofit. Yes. There's so much more I'd like to talk to you about, but we got to run. But I I do want to ask you a personal question. In the book, you, you, and it was based on a piece that you wrote originally in The Atlantic in uh, A Warning from Europe in in 2018. You write about a party that you had, you and your husband, uh, in 1999, and how so many of the people who were there have now become part of this sort of move toward authoritarianism and your relationships have been shattered. You also talk about Hungary and uh, the sort of rabid anti-Semitism that has driven authoritarianism there. And you have become a target in ways that you probably didn't anticipate 20 years ago, including uh, a target of anti-Semitism. And, you know, the reason I asked you about your family in the first place is the reason a lot of Jews came here uh, my family included, was to escape this very thing. Now we see anti-Semitism on the march in Europe, here in the U.S. Do you find that discomforting uh, personally? or It's, it's discomforting um, partly because I believe it was deliberately reinvented. So a modern version of anti-Semitism was, you know, there was a kind of folkloric version that was still around in some European countries, but really you didn't encounter, it wasn't part of politics. It wasn't on TV, wasn't part of mainstream conversation. And I think that certainly in Poland and Hungary, but elsewhere too, um, in France, you know, the, the, the far right in France and, and elsewhere too, people have been, del- have deliberately brought it back. Um, and in the U S too, I, yeah, QAnon I mean, is, uh, has those elements. There's an element of that in QAnon. There's an element in the attacks on George Soros. There's this underground theory, this this so-called great replacement theory, which is this conspiracy theory that the Jews yes. want to replace white people with brown people. And 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 the, and the synagogue shooting in the United States that I referred to in Pittsburgh was somebody who who believed in that. Well, the marchers in Charlottesville and marchers in Charlottesville. So it's it is very much part of far right movements everywhere, and I'm not sure it's worse in Europe than it is in the U.S. I mean, it may be a little bit more blatant because people feel less embarrassed about it than they do in the United States. And but, do you feel do you feel personally targeted by it? I feel personal. I am personally targeted by it. On, but on the other hand, you know, I know lots of non-Jews, including my husband, who are also the targets of these internet campaigns, smear campaigns, and so on. So I can't. 
I can't say that my experience is worse than theirs. I mean, it's a, it seems to me it's now a, an ugly part of being public in any way, whether you're a journalist, whether you're a professor at a university, whether you're a politician, you know, almost, almost anybody who says anything can now become a target of smear campaigns of various kinds. So I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to make my experience somehow exceptional or different. I mean, it's very ugly. It's unexpected. And it, I didn't have anything, no experience of this at all until six years ago, five, six, seven, seven years ago. So finally, you know, the, this book is sobering to say the least, but your closing paragraphs hold out some hope. Part of the hope was that somehow the uh, virus would, uh, would become a unifying theme. That seems not to have aged very well. No. But you, you say uh, to some, the precariousness of the, the current moment seems frightening, and yet the uncertainty has always been there. The liberalism of John Stuart Mill, Thomas Jefferson, or Vaclav Havel uh, never promised anything permanent. The checks and balances of Western constitutional democracies never guaranteed stability. Liberal democracies always demanded things from citizens. Participation, argument, effort, struggle. They always required some tolerance of for cacophony and, and uh, chaos, as well as some willingness to push back at the people who create cacophony and chaos. I thought that was such an important point. We have obligations. I mean, uh, democracy is a project, it, and it enlists us, uh, and it requires us. It's not a gift. So it's a really important point, I think, which is that for really much too long, most of us treated democracy like it was tap water. You know, it's just a thing that came out of the wall. You didn't have to do anything about it. Politics was for specialists, you know, people who were politicians. And the rest of us didn't have to worry about it. We could just go on doing whatever, writing books or making money or painting houses or whatever whatever it is that we do. And I think the lesson of the last few years is that it's not like that. It's really like water from the well. You know, you have to go and get it and periodically and you know, carried in buckets or, you know, I, I don't want to press the metaphor too far, but it's, it does periodically require people to be involved in it and to think about it. And I, one of the ironic impacts of 1989, I think, is that it made all of us overconfident, you know, because we'd, ha- you know, 1989 was a genuine triumph of democracy, not just the fall of communism, but then the choices made by particularly the European ex-communist countries, they all wanted to be democracies. um, And they all went in that direction, um, at least to start with. Um, And that gave us a lot of overconfidence. And the last few years are a reminder that democracy requires civic engagement. And it may require a younger generation that understands that. I have, there's some inklings that, that that's true. And it just will require people to be more involved in parties and institutions and whatever, get out the vote campaigns, um, you know, it's it's a it's something that if you're a citizen, it's part of your obligation is to be involved in the politics of your country. Yeah. Well, democracy to me is always the, the I've said this before, the it's a struggle between cynicism and hope. <laughs> and uh, I appreciate that you are as vigilant as you are in pursuit of it. Anne Applebaum, it's great to be with you. Thank you for your time, your work. You can read her in the Atlantic. I didn't even mention the 20-some years you uh, you wrote in the pages of the Washington Post and served on their editorial board, but I could take a whole hour on on, uh, on your career. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate your thoughtful questions. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. 
The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.